that you have, take your pen and scratch out the title, okay? Because um, Katie subbed for Barb this week, and um, I thought, man, that is not what this sermon is called. So, so I checked my uh, text message that I sent to Katie, and I should know better than to question her on details, right? So that's all me. And you definitely want to make sure you scratch that out because what you have on your uh, outline um, is different than that and it only covers one-third of the sermon. And the second phrase is the exact opposite on your paper, not there, of what I'm going to preach. So you want to make sure you get it right, as uh, Katie did, but I didn't. All right? So with that, let's uh, pray and then we'll, we'll kind of dive in. Father, we, uh, we come before you today, Lord. We thank you for your blessings. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for the salvation we have in your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for, his, for your word. We thank you for this Sermon on the Mount that we've been going through uh, slowly and will continue for quite some time in the future. But Lord, this uh, perfect message um, that uh, your son delivered um, to, to those who were in attendance, his disciples, but to us. Lord, that we might live according um, to who we are in you, Lord, um, disciples of you, Lord, whose lives have been changed, and we thank you for that, and we pray that this morning as we move into this uh, um, next section, Lord, that we would uh, glorify you in all that we do. May that be so. May you, through your Holy Spirit, may you um, guide and direct the preaching of your word that we might be transformed by it. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so you all have your outlines right now, right? Okay. Um, hold on a second. Okay, um, this morning we're going to return to the Sermon on the Mount. And the last time we were in the book of Matthew, we had finished up chapter 5. And Jesus had said um, earlier in that chapter, in Matthew five twenty, he had said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then from verse 21 through the remainder of the chapter, he gave us six different examples of how the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees missed the mark. Six examples where the scribes and the Pharisees focused only on the physical act of sin and totally missed the heart and the intent of the Old Testament law. And Jesus introduced each example in the same manner. He said, you have heard that it was said, and then he authoritatively authoritatively declared, but I say to you. And in each instance, Jesus exposited the true and the original intended meaning of the text. He got to the very heart of the law and explained it in a way that went far beyond the rules of the Pharisees. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So, as we move this morning into chapter 6, we're going to examine what it means to live a righteous life. And for the first half of the chapter, Jesus will focus on what we might, might be considered the religious aspects of our life, how we relate to God through giving to the poor, through prayer, and through fasting. And then in the second half of the chapter, we're going to focus on some of the more mundane and common aspects of life, food, clothing, worry, anxiety, gathering stuff, right? So we'll cover that over many months into the future. And you'll notice on the screen, okay, 
not just the title, but uh, you'll notice on the screen that I've broken up the text a bit. This morning, we're going to focus our attention on chapter 6, verses 1 to 6, and then verses 16 to 18. Because what Jesus does in his masterful sermon is lay down the overarching principle in verse 1. And we'll cover that. And then he applies that principle first to giving to the poor in verses 2 to 4, to prayer in verses 5 and 6. Then verses 7 to 15 are an extended parenthesis where Jesus shares the Lord's Prayer with his disciples. And we'll cover that the next time I'm in the pulpit. Finally, verses 16 to 18, Jesus applies the principle that he set forth in verse 1 to the subject of fasting. So that's where we're going to go today. All right? So what is the principle? Take a look with, with me at verse 1 in your Bible. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. That's the overarching principle. The Christian life is a balance. In many ways, the Christian life is a balance. On the one hand, we read earlier in the same Sermon on the Mount, um, in chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. But here in verse 1, we read, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Which is it? Which is it? Should I let my light shine so people can see? Or should I not practice my righteousness so people cannot see? I'm confused. On the surface, that looks like a contradiction, but it's not. There's no contradictions in God's Word. Just as we saw in the six examples in chapter 5, Jesus looks not only at the physical act, but he looks at our thoughts and the intentions of our heart. And the difference between those two verses in chapter 5 and chapter 6 is this. The, the difference between the two statements are, number one, motive, and number two, who receives the glory. All right? Motive and who receives the glory. In Matthew 5, 16, you are to let your light shine before others so that, notice the words, so that, there's the motive, they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He receives the glory. The motive of our heart is not that we would be seen, but that He would be seen and glorified, rightly. Our focus is not on ourselves, but on our Heavenly Father. We seek to glorify Him in all things, and we, we pray that our witness to, to a watching world will bring Him glory that He is due. And by seeing our light, which Jesus defines as our good works, they should be increasingly drawn to His light, which is His glory. You know, every Sunday morning, the elders and the worship team gather for prayer before the service. You see us up here. We, we gather for prayer that God would bless the, the worship, the, the, uh, the reading of the word, the prayer. Um, and often the words of our prayer, okay, not always, but often the words of our prayer is that we would not be seen. Our prayer is that through the singing of songs, through prayer, through the preaching of his word, that he would be seen 
and glorified. That's our focus. And whether we're leading in worship or simply living the Christian life from day to day, which Romans 12.1 defines as worship, we are His instruments, instruments intended to bring Him glory. Now contrast that with Matthew 6.1, where the intention of the heart is to be seen by others in order to bring glory to ourselves and to be rewarded accordingly. That's the wrong motive. Again, that verse, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. That's the motive. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. If the intention of our heart is to be seen by others, then we've completely missed the mark. If we practice our righteousness before others in order to be seen by them, then our motive is all wrong. Others might see our good works and praise us for them. If so, then we've accomplished our goal. We've accomplished our goal, but no more. But no more. We've already received our reward from those we aim to please. They patted us on the back. They've told us how wonderful we are. Yet that earthly reward cannot compare to the reward that awaits those who truly love the Lord Jesus Christ and seek to bring Him glory. Can't compare. And those who seek and receive their reward in the here and now have no reward in the hereafter. Jesus says, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. End of 6.1. See, one of the problems that we have that we face due to sin is that by nature we desire the praise of man more than the praise of God. When we receive the affirmation of man, it validates us, doesn't it? It raises our self-worth. It gives us value. And different people seek that out to varying degrees. I know in my own life that the affirmation of others is important to me. Gary Chapman made famous the, uh, the book, The Five Love Languages. My love language is words of affirmation. And I care perhaps too much about how others perceive me. I find joy when people notice the things I do and bring attention to them. I find joy when someone speaks in a positive way about some aspect of my character. And it's right there Right at that point, it's right there that the danger lies. That's where the danger lies. As soon as joy and affirmation, which is not by itself a bad thing, as soon as that turns into motive, the reason for it, then I've fallen into a very dangerous area. As soon as I receive praise for what God alone should be praised for, then I've robbed him of his glory. I have already received my reward in this life, and there is none in the life to come. On a typical Sunday morning, after I preach, and I'm sure that Pastor John and Pastor Eric experience the exact same thing, there will be a handful of you that will come up to me and say, great message. And I appreciate that. I really do. My typical response, and of you who have done that, 
My typical response is to give a polite thank you and then move on. I don't want to dwell too in that conversation for too long. Nor do I want to usurp the glory that is rightly the Lord's. However, if you come up to me and you say, great message, here's what I heard you say. Here's what the Holy Spirit is doing in me as a result. Here's where I was convicted by the Word of God. And by the way, that has happened on numbers of occasions. Then I'm going to have that conversation with you all afternoon. In that case, I'm not the one receiving the glory. He is. He is. He is rightly receiving the glory for what he has done through me, through the preaching of his word, and in you by the work of the Holy Spirit. And we can sit together in that room all day long and praise God together. In this case, our motive is right. And he alone receives the glory. So that, that's verse 1. That's the overarching principle. And this thought, these, those thoughts that I just shared are going to carry all the way through all three of the examples that Jesus gives. Verse 2. Jesus takes the general principle and he begins applying it to various spiritual disciplines. He'll give us three examples in the text. Giving to the poor, verses 2 to 4. Prayer, verses 5 to 6. And fasting. Verses 16 to 18. And those three examples are only that. They do not exhaust the topic. Okay, those are just the three examples Jesus gives. There are all kinds of things in the disciplines in the spiritual life that this would apply to. But he gives us those three. Anytime, anytime we practice our righteousness before others in order to be seen by them, we're in, in danger of having the wrong motive and usurping God's glory. So Jesus begins, verse 2, by saying, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may, may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Giving to the needy is a good thing. A good thing. God commands it all throughout the scriptures. Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 8, Moses writes, If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. And then he concludes in verse 11, that section where he says, For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. Then the psalmist writes, Whoever is generous, I'm sorry, not the psalmist, this Proverbs, um, whoever is generous to the poor, lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed, Proverbs nineteen seventeen, And whoever is a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor, Proverbs 22, 9. In the book of Luke, Jesus says, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you, Luke six thirty eight. 
The author of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Hebrews 13, 16. And finally, John gives us the warning. He says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? 1 John 3.17. So Jesus, here in verse 2, condemns the hypocrite who has a trumpet sounded before him in the synagogues and on the streets so that he can be praised by others. Some commentaries, I saw a reference to a trumpet-shaped offering box with a wide end that went down into a narrower tube. Putting in a, an offering in the box would sound the trumpet. I'm not convinced that the offering box is what Jesus is referring to at all. Rather, I believe what Jesus is doing here is painting an absurd word picture of a man walking down the street toward the synagogue. He has his trumpeter, hired just for the occasion, walking before him. Perhaps he has a whole marching band. I added that part. That's not in the scripture. But he has at least the trumpeter. The trumpet blares out to announce that this godly, righteous man is on his way to making his offering. Jesus calls this man a hypocrite, one who wears a mask, one who plays a role, one who is something other than he seems to be. He says that this man does these things in order to be praised by others. Look how often he gives. Look how big that check is. Let's put a name, his name on the side of a building. Let's, reckon, let's give him a big award to recognize his generosity. Jesus says in verse, true, to verse 2, Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. That person sought after the praise of man, and he got it. He got it. He received his reward in full. God does not reward hypocrisy, but he does punish it. He does punish it. Giving to the poor and the needy is a good thing. God loves a cheerful giver, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. The problem is that we can do good things, right things, sometimes for all the wrong reasons. When we give in order to glorify ourselves, our sinful motivations taint even our most altruistic acts. Lord goes on in verses 3 and 4 to describe the right way. Okay, we, he, In all three of these examples, he'll give the wrong way, the right way. All right? He goes on to describe the right way to give. He says, but when you give to the needy, assuming by the way that you will, okay, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you, verses 3 and 4. In other words, rather than blowing trumpets in the street in order to receive the praise of others, don't even tell yourself. Don't even tell yourself. Your giving should be so secret that your own left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. See, the hypocrite 
not only can seek the praise of others, but he can also, and I want you to hear this, all right? He can also seek the praise of self. Seek the praise of of self. Maybe you don't announce your giving in the streets, but if it becomes a point of pride internally, it can also be sin. Look how much I'm doing for God. Look how much I have given to the church or to a particular cause or ministry. See, we never want to be in a position where we gloat over how good we are. All of the glory should go to God. All of it. John Stott said, Christian giving is to be marked by self-sacrifice and self-forgetfulness, not by self-congratulation. All right? Now, earlier this week, I believe it was Tuesday, I had a conversation that reminded me of this principle. I was with a group down at the Ark, um, who I met when they came last year. I met them for the first time last year. And the group leaders are probably in their early 70s or so. And they brought a busload of high school students to the Ark and the Creation Museum to be equipped um, in a biblical worldview. Okay, it was a blessing. And this group, they had some special requests for me, and I'm happy to honor that. I, I met the group in the morning at their hotel in order to give them an overview of what they would experience at both attractions. They loaded the kids onto the bus as they were getting ready to head out, and then I boarded the bus and probably about 20 minutes or so explained to them, hey, here's what you're going to see over the next two days. And uh, so I did that, and then later in the day, I I happened to be at the Ark that day um, and uh, sat out at a picnic table and had a very long conversation with them on a whole host of things. And then in the afternoon, I brought them um, to what was supposed to be a 10-minute meet-and-greet with Ken Ham, that they were going to meet Ken. We had arranged for that for them. It turned into a 45-minute Q&A session with Ken where he answered some pretty amazingly deep questions that these kids had. At the end of that session, the man's wife took me aside, okay, and she said, My husband and I have been married for two and a half years. That surprised me because I assumed they had been together for a lifetime. They've been married just two and a half years. And then, without being prideful at all, and I want you to hear that, there is no pride in this statement, all right? She said, "Um, he's done very well for himself. He loves what you guys are doing here at the ministry. And he loves you. If you ever need anything, anything, and she was speaking primarily financially, please think of us. Please think to come to us. There was no flash. There was no show. There were no trumpets. Her husband didn't even know she was speaking to me about that. I assume she told him afterwards. It was simply a woman speaking on behalf of herself and her husband saying, we want to be a blessing. We want to use the resources that God has given us to glorify Him and to equip the next generation. See, her conversation with me was in secret. Unfortunately, now you all know, but um, her conversation with me was in secret. And Jesus says in verse 4, 
so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. We don't need trumpets to announce our righteousness to others. We don't need to self-congratulate ourselves on how much we give. Rather, we give in secret knowing that the Father who sees in secret will reward us. God has infinite knowledge. He not only knows our acts, but He knows our thoughts, our motivations, and the intentions of our heart. O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Psalm 139, 1-4. So when we give to others with the right motivation, which is not to call attention to ourselves, but to glorify our Father in heaven, excuse me, then he will see in secret, and he will reward openly in this life and in the life to come. God himself is our reward. So we'll move on to the second point in uh, verses 5 and 6. We'll talk about prayer. Jesus applies the exact same principle from verse 1 to the subject of prayer. And he says, and when you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites. Notice it again. He's repeating the word hypocrites. He does it in all three examples. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus starts with when you pray. In other words, he begins with the assumption that you will pray when you pray. He's not condemning public prayer. We, this morning, I, um, providentially, are in the discipleship class, our topic was prayer. Um, just the next thing. He's not condemning public prayer. Rather, he's condemning showy prayer that's intended to impress man rather than glorify God. For some, public prayer is not communion with God. Instead, it's a means of increasing one's reputation. Through flowery words and speech, I can impress you with how holy I am. Haven't we all been in the presence of people like that? Their words are beautiful. They quote the scriptures. Their rhetoric soars, and you feel as if you've been transported to the foot of the throne of grace. And for those who truly have the gift of prayer, praise God for them. Praise God for them. But for others who merely have the gift of speech, it may be indiscernible for us, right? Sometimes it can be indiscernible. But the onus is not on those of us who hear. Um, Mike uh, Toad mentioned in our discipleship class, if you look at the front of your bulletin, the, it says, judge not right? It's not for us to judge, for those of us who hear. We focus on on God. We focus on praising Him. The onus is on the one who speaks. What is that motive? Jesus commands us not to be like the hypocrites, one who wears a mask and plays a role. 
For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Again, God not only listens to the words that we say in prayer, but he looks upon the intentions of the heart. And when you pray, you can say all of the right things. But if your motivation is to be seen by man, rather than to bring glory to God, then you will have already received your reward. Prayer that's intended to impress man rather than bring glory to God is condemned by Jesus. By contrast, Jesus says this in verse 6, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. I want to read that again. I'm going to emphasize some particular words. I want you to hear this. Um, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Prayer is deeply personal. It's deeply personal. It's a conversation with God. Again, in our class this morning, which I may refer to a couple times because we talked about prayer, I asked the question, what is prayer? And one of the guys said, um, a direct line to the Trinity through Jesus Christ. Praise God, that's what it is. It's a conversation with God. And again, that doesn't preclude public prayer. Public prayer is wonderful. We've, we've prayed for at least three times so far in the service, right? Public prayer is wonderful, but in its basic Form, prayer, is one-on-one communication with your Heavenly Father. And our prayer life should be laser-focused on God without any thought about who may see us or who may hear us. Prayer is not about impressing onlookers. Shut the door. Shut the door. I love this quote by A.H. McNeil from the early 1900s. He says, The secret of religion is religion in secret. The secret of religion is religion in secret. Shut the door. In the secret place, the world is shut out. It's just you and God, as it should be. Pour out your heart to Him with prayers of adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Don't try to impress him with your words. I can guarantee you he's not impressed. He's not impressed. Come with the right motivation to glorify his name. And then your father who sees sees in secret will reward you openly. Jesus has much more to say about prayer. And in fact, he will teach his disciples just how to pray in the, following, in the following verses. And Lord willing, we'll look together at the Lord's Prayer in verses 7 to 15 the next time I'm in the pulpit. But for this morning, we're going to hop forward. We're going to hop forward to verse 16 to look at Jesus' final example. So the third example, verse 16, that Jesus uses, is to, illust- that uses to illustrate his point is fasting. Fasting. He says... And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. 
But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Fasting is a spiritual discipline where the disciple gives up food or something else for a period of time in order to focus our thoughts on God. And there was only one fast that was prescribed in the Law of Moses on the Day of Atonement. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is, it is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever, Leviticus 16, 29 to 31. That phrase, afflict yourself, is understood to include fasting. Okay. Now over time... Additional fasts came to be observed, including private fasts. Jesus never taught fasting directly, okay? He never taught fasting directly, but he certainly taught it indirectly. He first taught it by his own example. When he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness as he was being tempted by the devil, Matthew 4, Luke 4. Secondly, Jesus was asked a question. So it wasn't teaching fasting, he was, he was answering a question about fasting. Secondly, Jesus was asked a question by the disciples of John about why they and the Pharisees fasted, but Jesus and his disciples did not. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Okay, Matthew nine fifteen. So Jesus assumed, Jesus assumed that there would come a time when it was proper for his disciples to fast. He does the same thing here in verse 16 when he said, begins with, when you fast, right? So the question is not whether or not you fast, but when you fast, how do you do it in a way that brings glory to God, right? So Jesus begins this section with the warning, okay? The wrong way and the right way. And when you fast... Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. As he does in the other examples, our Lord refers to these people as hypocrites. Again, he uses it in all three sections. Actors. One who's playing a role that's different than what he truly is. And he says they look gloomy and they disfigure their faces. Their goal is that by looking miserable, the world will know that they are fasting and see just how pious they are. And it's in that recognition, in that recognition, when the world sees just how pious they are, it's in that recognition that they receive their reward. The people see them as holy. The Lord does not. The Lord does not. I'm sure that there are many who fast and we never know. That's the way it should be. That's the way it should be. At the same time, we've all spoken to people who are fasting for personal reasons, or those perhaps of the Catholic faith, and you guys know that's my background um, as a child. 
um, who've given up something perhaps for Lent or avoid eating meat on Fridays. And I'm not condemning those practices. I'm not. But I do want to point out how our conversation about those practices directly connects to what Jesus is talking about. Okay? Oh, I would love to go out to eat with you, but I'm fasting today. Oh, that looks so good. But I gave that up for Lent. It's not quite disfiguring your face, but the effect is the same. The effect is exactly the same. I'm announcing to the world that I'm fasting. It's a subtle announcement that often comes with some grumbling or complaining. I can't do that. You know, I'm fasting today. But it's an announcement nonetheless. It's an announcement nonetheless. In his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, which, I don't know, a year ago I promised I would use liberally when I through this series, um, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, any announcing of the fact of what we are doing or calling attention to it is some, something which is utterly reprehensible to him as it was in the case of prayer and of almsgiving. It is exactly the same principle. You must not sound a trumpet proclaiming the things you're going to do. You must not stand at the street corners or in a prominent place in the synagogue when you pray. And in the same way, you must not call attention to the fact that you are fasting. So Jesus says, but when you fast, assuming again that you will, all right? Anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verses 17 and 18. There's nothing special. There's absolutely nothing special about anointing your head or washing your face. That was and is basic hygiene, all right? Wash your face and go on about your life. Wash your face and go on about your life. You're not putting on a show for man, but you're using the spiritual discipline of fasting to focus on God. Forget about the perceptions of other people. This isn't about them. It's not about them. Don't worry about the impression you're making. Just forget yourself, forget them, and give yourself entirely to God. Be concerned only about Him and about pleasing Him. Be concerned only about His honor and His glory. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. We began with verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So whether we're talking about giving to the needy, prayer, fasting, or a whole host of other aspects of the Christian life, the principle's the same. Check the motivations of your heart. If your motives are to be seen by others so that they might see you in a good light or that you might appear righteous or pious or holy, and your motives are misguided. They're misguided. You will receive the reward that you seek, the praise of man, but no more than that. 
No more than that. God's word is explicit on this. He repeated it so many, all three times. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. All right? But your motivation is to bring glory to God and to his name. Practice these things in secret. I said this earlier, and it bears repeating. The secret of religion is religion in secret. When you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door. Shut the door. When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. May each one of us one day hear the words of God as he says this, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Matthew twenty-five, twenty-three. God himself is our reward. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. Father, we do indeed come to you in prayer. Not with flashy words, not with soaring rhetoric, but with a simple dependence on you for who you are, for what you do in our lives, for the salvation that we have in your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I, I pray for each and every one of us, Lord, that we would indeed check the motivations of our heart. Why do we do the things that we do? Do we do them for your glory or we do them so others can see? And it's a dangerous trap that we can fall into. Father, I pray that in each and every one of our lives that our relationship with you would be one of, of communion between just us. Father, we, we praise you for the church. We praise you for the fellowship we share. We praise you for the, the shared mission. But when it's all said and done, the relationship is between you and your disciples. May you work in each one of us, Lord, to, to focus on the right motivations, on the right goal, and the right end, which is your glory. May you work that in each and every one of us, and may you be praised. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. Please rise for the benediction. Okay, so, so it's not even 12 o'clock. So as you guys see Darla this morning, you say, Pastor Eddie apologizes. Because, <laughs> because on children's church days, she wants to drag it out a little bit. And I don't. So, <laughs> so anyway, to which I'm sure the rest of you are grateful. All right, let's, uh, uh, let's uh, we go to the benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Go in his peace.